Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. The book of James continues with chapters 4 and 5. The section that we pick up with in chapter 4 began back with the first verse of chapter 3, and it will continue through the 12th verse of chapter 4. James continues his central claim that our inner character is displayed in our day-to-day practices. In other words, who we are at our very core is revealed in the way we choose to live from moment to moment during the day. It's not in those calculated, special moments that we put great importance on. Who we really are ends up getting revealed in those little everyday things that we not, might not even be thinking about. We reveal who we are by the way we behave all the time, every day. In verses 1 through 10, he says that the believers are living like the world. They're trying to keep one foot in each place. And by doing so, by not being fully aligned with Christ and choosing to live as Christ tells us to live instead of the way the world tells us to live, The absence of a firm choice is causing them to drag part of the way the world operates into the church. Whether that's intentional or not, we're not told, but they're attempting to make the church operate like the world. Instead of trying to influence the world, the world is influencing the church. He says that they don't have because they don't ask, they just take, and he calls it murder and coveting. Now, it seems really unlikely to me that he actually had church members who were murdering others in order to take their stuff. Um, That certainly would have caused a scandal in the community. It would have been something that others in the church would talk about. I believe what he's saying is that they are taking things from one another in ways that harm each other and deprive one another of the joy and the fullness of life. Jesus talks about um, things starting with our motivation, like lust is adultery. So it starts by us looking at someone, by longing for them, by letting that be cultivated within us. I think the same may be true here. By wanting what the other person has, we're willing to murder their reputation, to murder our relationship with them. And so we covet, we long for, we want And then eventually we find a way to take, even to the other person's harm. There are other ways of accomplishing and achieving what we want. We can ask. We can ask people to share with us. We can ask them how they got to where they are. We can find out their story and how that might apply to our life. We can also ask God for the things that our heart desires. And if our heart's desire is not something that lines up with God, then God will help us through that prayer and relationship adjust our wanting so that we want things that are more in line with what God wants for us. James says that God declines the request because he knows their motive and he knows what they'll do with it. God has an ability to know what we can handle. 
Um, If too much power is going to go to our head and cause us to misbehave, God may not want to elevate us to a position that has that kind of power. So God is aware of who they really are. You can't pretend with God. Um, We can sometimes put on a good facade for everybody else, but God knows the inner heart. We can't pretend with Him. James, along with many others, calls this adultery for us to flirt with the world. Um, He says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. It puts us at odds with God. And it's a way of thinking about it that ought to help us understand what we're doing. We would be appalled if our partners cheated on us in life. So Even if my husband were flirting with someone and never followed through, it would hurt my feelings to watch him flirt with another woman. The same thing James here is saying about God. When we keep one foot in the world, when we try to live like the world, when we try to drag the world's practices into the church, we're in essence flirting with the world. Um, And it's not something that we should embrace. We have to choose whether we're going to be followers of Christ and live the way God intended, or if we're going to be carnal and live the way of the world. We cannot have both the world and God as our lover. Um, We have to make a choice. This idea of a jealous God comes to us from Exodus 25. And it doesn't mean that God has an issue with jealousy, like that God can't control himself, um, the way we think about how other people behave when they're jealous and overreact, but rather he won't tolerate cheating. He won't be made a fool of. I mean, surely we can all kind of understand that. Um, it says this in Exodus 25, and then it repeats it in Exodus 34, 14. Um, he also quotes Proverbs three thirty four here in verse 6. And what he says to them is, so change. Change what you're doing. Stop it. It's hard. That's for sure. But if you resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and God will draw near to you. So go in the right direction. Don't go in the direction of the bad choice. Resist the devil. Stop going in that direction. Turn around and go toward God. Now, this becomes one of the places that we have to understand the line between free will Just because we can't do anything to save ourselves, just because we can never in our own power be good enough to please God, we can't be perfect and without sin on our own, doesn't mean we have no power to resist sin. We need to allow the Holy Spirit of God to help us, but we also need to exercise the power that we have been given. We have been given a free will, and so with that free will comes the ability to choose. And with it, James says, you should resist the devil and choose to draw nearer to God. Instead of resisting God and God's Holy Spirit trying to help you live right and going toward the devil. Make better choices with your free will. Do your part and God will do his part. Realize how you've been living. Regret the choices you've been making and change. That's the definition of repentance. Not just feeling bad about it but recognizing, regretting, and changing. You can and you should make better choices. In verses 11 and 12, he begins talking about speaking evil. And he says that speaking evil is 
two things. First of all, it is judging. It is assuming the role of judge about somebody else and finding them deficient in some way. It can also be slandering, saying something untrue or unkind about someone and doing so for your own purpose. This was forbidden to us way back in Leviticus 9.16. And he says this is so arrogant. It's so arrogant to think that you can speak evil of someone and have that be okay. Arrogance, he says, is the source of evil speaking, of not understanding um, the consequences, not realizing that God knows our heart and our motives and sees what we're doing. In verses 13 through 17, this begins a new section of the book, the final section. And this section is going to focus on a life that is aligned with the Lord's purposes. So when we resist the devil and draw nearer to God, when we want our life, those day-to-day practices to line up with and reveal that we belong to the Lord, what does that look like? So he says, first of all, that that kind of life is humble, it is just, and it is enduring. It's willing to suffer and be consistent in going in the same direction. And it is also faithful to God. In verses 13 through 17, it's going to look at what what that humble life looks like. He says that we assume too much. We can get all bound up in our words. And that's something that I don't want you to let happen. There is within Christianity this movement called the Word of Faith movement, where it's like words do have power. That is true. But I've seen people who want tell you the truth because they think they would be making a negative confession and undermining the good that comes in their life. You can't live bound up like that. Now, you can choose to be positive and not be a complainer all the time and all. But the key here isn't to always say, if the Lord wills. You don't always have to put that phrase in there, but it's about your attitude, about an awareness that life is limited, that time is not infinite for each of us, that what we do with the time we have matters, and that the only one who knows how much time we really have left is God. So realize that pleasing God in this life matters. We need to keep an always an awareness of the finiteness of our existence. Paul um, is opposed to the practice of boasting. We've seen that in some of Paul's letters. And now we see that James clearly does as well. There's just not a place for boasting in our lives. The power of life and death is not in our hands. It's in God's hands. And in verse 17... He says, if you know the right thing to do and you fail to do it, well, that's going to be sin. It's sinful not to do what you know to be the right thing. We're responsible for what we know. The more we know, the more we're expected to do. And so we know this reality about our lives. So stop acting like your lives are infinite. And then we move into the final chapter, chapter 5. In verses 1 through 6, he's going to talk about what a just life looks like. The wealthy are warned about the false security that they tend to place in their wealth. Certainly having money gives us a little more cushion, a little more room 
to not be worried about things. If you have no money and you're worried about where your next meal is coming from or how you're going to pay your rent and keep a house over your, a roof over your head, then you don't feel secure. But when you have a little money, you have a little more security. But if you think that's your ultimate security, then that's going to end up being your downfall. He particularly warns them if they have gained this money through unjust means, if they have hurt other people in order to gain their wealth, well, eventually those scales are going to be balanced by God because God doesn't tolerate us oppressing and abusing other people. He also says here that we are, if we're blessed with money, with resources and more than enough, we're expected to use those to help others, we should use our wealth, our influence, our blessings to increase the amount of justice in our world and to be generous as Christ was generous. And if we fail to do that, then God will fail to be generous to us in mercy. Um, he talks about withheld wages specifically. This would be taking advantage of the poor just because you can not paying them any more than you have to just because nobody's going to make you do it. Um, We should pay people a living wage and a valuable wage. And if we have promised them something and they have worked for it, then we should give it to them. We should not withhold wages. Promise we'll pay them later or that was a mistake. We'll make it up. Um, These things are also a form of murder. They're acts of murder of the spirit, of the soul, and of the sacred image of the other person, as well as they they murder, they kill our relationship with other people. When other people know us to be unkind, mean, stingy, withholding, and cheating, we're cheating them out of what they have earned. Um, And they will turn around and condemn us. Um, God does not approve of it, and it's something that James certainly condemns here. In verses 7 through 11, he talks about what that kind of enduring life, um, enduring suffering looks like. It's hard to be patient when we're going through a difficult time. We don't understand why God doesn't deliver us right now, like fix it. I don't want to have to go through this anymore, but we have to learn to be patient. It's especially hard to do when we're hurting, but James encourages us to keep believing Um, Instead of focusing on how bad things are, look for the things that we can learn. How can we grow? How can we develop? How can we mature from all of the circumstances that we are in? We have another verse in Romans that tells us that God works all things together for our good. It doesn't mean that everything that happens to us is good. It also doesn't mean that everything that happens to us was what God wanted to have happen to us. Sometimes we are, are on the receiving end of the free will choices of others that go against God. But I have a dear friend who says um, some Catholic nuns that mentored her told her that God wastes nothing. So even when we're going through a difficult time, even when we are suffering, God won't waste our suffering and our pain. He will work to bring good things for us out of it and our growth, our development um, are good things for us that can come out of that. So it happens in spite of the circumstances because life is not going to be without hardship. 
If you remember, Jesus himself told us in John um, chapter 16, 33, I think it was, that in this world we will have trouble, but that we could take heart because he had overcome the world. It won't always be that hard. But don't give up believing that God will balance the scales. Don't get frustrated with one another. Sometimes when we're hurting, we lash out. Um, For instance, a lot of times when an animal is in pain and we're trying to help, they don't know we're trying to help. They just know they're hurting and so they'll bite us or scratch us and get frustrated. We do that with other people too. When we're hurting, we lash out with our words, with our actions. We withdraw our love. Um, And James encourages us, don't get frustrated. Don't get mean to one another because life is difficult. It's so easy to become tired and unkind when we're hurting and lash out at others. Also, don't make yourself the judge of other people. Be patient with one another. When someone else is tired and frustrated and becomes unkind and mean, um, try not to write them off. Try to see their pain and understand where they are. Maybe help them work through it. We can help one another in the right direction. Um, The book of Hebrews, I believe it is, says we spur one another on to good works. Um, And then he says we could be like Job. Be patient and be faithful, even in the middle of frustration, in the middle of not understanding, and in the middle of suffering. Verse 12 talks about um, the truthfulness of speech, that no one should need us to make an oath. Our word should be our word. When we say something, people should be able to believe it and trust in it rather than saying, do you promise? They should just know that we are people of our word. If we say it, then people should know it is true. And if we say we will do it, then we should do it. In other words, those who follow Christ should be known for their honesty. And this verse 12 started a section where he's now talking about what that faithful life looks like? What does it mean to be faithful? Well, one of those things is it means to be honest. Then in verses 13 through 18, he talks about the prayer of faith. He wants us to be known for praying, for talking more to God than we do to other people, for having this kind of relationship, an open communication line where we talk to God and God talks to us, and we are changed and shaped because of it. And when we pray, When we talk to God, when we ask God for things, we should do it with conviction and with confidence. We should pray for each other. And when he talks about oil, anointing one another with oil, oil is the sign of the Holy Spirit. So it's a a tangible way of invoking the Holy Spirit, of recognizing that we're asking the Spirit of God to be involved and at work here. He also says to forgive one another. A faithful life means a life of not holding grudges. We need to be a place where people seek help, not judgment. They know they can come to us and they will receive grace and mercy and forgiveness, particularly if they own what they have done wrong, that they won't find judgment and rejection. In other words, we should be as a community of faith, a hospital for sinners, 
instead of a museum for saints. You may have heard that saying before. In other words, we don't all pretend like we're perfect and put that on display, which is what you go to a museum to see, is displays of perfectly arranged things that help us remember. But we should be a hospital, a place where people can come in their pain and admit their pain and find help for it. We don't have to be perfect like Jesus. We don't have to be the Son of God. We don't have to be divine in order to have our prayers answered. God is not a respecter of persons. He's made these promises to all of us, and He'll do it for you just like He did it for Elijah. Elijah wasn't divine. Elijah was a human prophet. He asked for things, and God did it. If God did it for him, He'll do it for you. Verses 19 and 20, um, he wants us to be involved in recovering those who wander. So if we're a hospital for sinners, usually people come to the hospital. What happens if people walk away? If because of their pain, they wander away, they leave, they check themselves out against medical advice, or they get lured away by the world. If we saw Let's think about Jesus' metaphor of a flock, and he talks about the the good shepherd goes and seeks the one. He leaves the 99 and goes to seek the one who is lost. If we see someone wandering away from faith, walking away from Jesus, beginning to go back into the world and do things, if we see that that's going to harm them, shouldn't we love them and care about them enough to be willing to go after them? to go and try to bring them back into the fold. Um, Don't look for reasons to exclude people and excuses to kick people out of fellowship. Look for ways to restore them, to maintain them. This does not mean, however, that we allow them to remain in their sin and immaturity, that when people throw um, a spiritual toddler tantrum, that we give in to the tantrum, like they throw the the fit on the cookie and we give them the cookie. That's not what it's saying, but it means we don't throw them out. It would mean in this case, actually, that we sit down with the toddler having the tantrum and go, do you know you're having a tantrum? Do you know that this is wrong? Do you know you're acting like a two-year-old? And you're not. You've you've been a Christian for 40 years. Why are you you behaving like this? But it also means that when people just get hurt and don't understand We're willing to go to them and try to bring them back. We do it for the kingdom, and we do it for their good. We try to do the best for other people. So it's not all about us. It's also about others. The prayer of faith, the emphasis in that prayer of faith is not on the how to pray, like getting the words all right, the position of your body. It's not even about the what. Like, there's nothing magical about using oil or using the right words. The emphasis is on the to whom, to whom we pray, and what is our relationship with the God to whom we seek. In other words, go to God. Being faithful means going to God. You go to God for yourself. You go to God for others. You go to God for healing. You go to God for restoration. In other words, a life that looks like God wants it to is humble, just, enduring of suffering, and faithful. And all of that begins and ends in God 
and our relationship with God, which overflows into our relationship with others. But it is seen clearly in the way we behave. Our actions are the evidence of the faith we say that we have in our heart. And that's the letter that James writes to the believers who have been under his leadership um, and that he wants them to live most likely written toward the end of his life as his legacy of faith.